Wish you weren't hearing an ad? Want to get the next episode even sooner? After the show, head to watchnebula.com slash modulus. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free and sooner than everyone else, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational content creators. Best of all, you're helping support us to make even more amazing content. Check out watchnebula.com slash modulus. This is Modulus, the podcast hosted by me, Brian McManus. And me, Stephanie Salmon. In each episode, we take turns sharing the stories of the people behind extraordinary science, engineering, and technological advancement. To inspire not only ourselves, but generations of inventors and history makers. Today, we're diving into the depths of the ocean to surface stories from people who've lived underwater. First of all, you're in a underwater space capsule. I envisioned I took my mouthpiece out of my mouth and pushed myself to the surface. Everything the textbook says. Went and grabbed him, came back, and where were you going? He said he was chasing a starfish. Well, I don't know what the story was, but starfishes don't run away on you. I, I can tell you that. Humans have long wondered what lies in the great unknown, past the clouds, the sky, and our atmosphere. Since 1961, we've had the tools to explore it. We've launched astronauts at more than 20 times the speed of sound up to an inhospitable environment unsuitable for the human body. And we've watched and celebrated as humans explored this final frontier. But as these astronauts fly beyond our pale blue dot, they leave behind a planet that's still a mystery. Only 5% of our oceans have actually been explored. Yet a few decades before our first spaceflight, divers were working to build equipment that could allow humans to do the inhuman, to go deeper underwater, to explore a frontier as unwelcoming as space. The two environments both pose extraordinary risks to their explorers. In space, technology accommodates astronauts in a vacuum, almost entirely absent of pressure. But underwater, the technology must overcome the hurdle of too much pressure. Pressure that's so intense, it could collapse your lungs and kill you instantly. So while we know much about how humans have survived in space, divers have worked quietly to move beyond scuba diving and to test the limits of the human body with a technique that allows people to live underwater, known as saturation diving a harrowing, sometimes deadly, and exhilarating experience, according to those who have lived it. I've been accused of being a adrenaline junkie, taught skydiving for years, and drove race cars, so. This is Alan Waterfield, a self-described thrill-seeker who studied hyperbaric high-pressure physiology. But that was not difficult. On himself. I've always, always been involved with water. My name is Waterfield. Alan began saturation diving in the late 1950s. 
His research at the University of New Hampshire focused on how humans responded to the pressure of being underwater. Every 10 meters a diver descends in the ocean, the weight of the water above increases by one atmosphere. This means it only takes a few feet of depth underwater for the pressure to be so immense, lungs can't function properly. Scuba diving gear addresses this issue, but there's still one issue gear can't fix. The issues in saturation always remain the same. Something retired U.S. Navy Captain Marie Knefels knows all about, decompression sickness. Ascent is one of the most dangerous aspects of diving. Because of the way humans breathe underwater with diving gear, as they ascend, the decreasing pressure releases nitrogen into the body, causing life-threatening bubbles in the blood and tissues. Like opening a shaken bottle of soda, gas escapes quickly. This debilitating disorder is known as decompression sickness, or the bends. Saturation diving is the answer to this problem. The surface supply guys had only a 20 minute bottom time. Rather than go down for a dive and have to come back up slowly every time, divers can live at pressure in a tiny habitat deep under the surface or in a pressurized vessel aboard a ship. They can stay here for days or months at a time and only have to undergo one depressurization at the end of their mission. Allen's research took him into these habitats frequently where he measured his body's own response to pressure developing what's known as saturation diving tables. But according to him, life in these environments is not all that exciting, despite being hundreds of feet underwater. First of all, you're in a underwater space capsule. So you're the engineers. There's a whole number of things that you take care of that way. Uh, you have to feed yourself. Uh, the first microwave I ever used, I used underwater. I've never seen one before. We, we had our food stored in freezers down there. You have to scrub out the carbon dioxide. So, so we had experiments going regularly and spending a reasonable amount of time in the water. So the regular days were not crazy, crazy, but they were a regular laboratory fee, take care of, go diving. Except there is one thing. To safely survive in this underwater habitat, divers breathe in a gas cocktail known as Heliox. This mixture contains helium, which does not come without its own consequences. Piece that's going to get you the first time you climb into high in a habitat, you go to talk, and the gas is thicker, right? And so you talk like Donald Duck when you talk. So while I was on the bottom, my son was born. So I called back and tried to talk to my wife, and, and she didn't know who she was talking to, you know, with the Donald Duck down there. It sounds funny, until you're stuck in the same small enclosed habitat for days on end. But the reasons for using the Heliox mixture, and the reasons for a host of other safety considerations for saturation diving, are quite serious. It took me a good month before my lung function returned to normal. That's because when things go wrong, saturation diving can be debilitating and deadly. I would always say to the divers is that the first symptom of decompression sickness in uh, saturation is, I can't be having decompression sickness. Marie, who worked in the medical corps of the Navy, is a doctor and expert in exercise physiology. She helped design decompression tables that charted safe rates of ascension to the surface and assisted engineers as they developed new underwater breathing apparatuses and the ways the equipment could help increase work performance. 
She also worked as both a subject and physician for the Navy's saturation diving program, and she witnessed her fair share of decompression sickness cases. It's so insidious. Because you're working underwater, you're working hard, and starting decompression goes, gee, my knee's sore. Oh, I can't be decompression sickness because I was working hard, my knee's sore. And as you keep on coming shallower and shallower, and you realize, I think I have a hit. Once divers realize they might have decompression sickness or the bends, they can reverse the condition by returning to high pressure and restarting the depressurization. But if left unchecked, gases that were dissolved in the tissue of the diver's body begin to form life-threatening bubbles. If the bubbles are too big or form too quickly, they can injure tissue or even block blood vessels. This blood vessel blockage causes pain and in the worst cases, death. Another thing divers can experience is something called nitrogen narcosis, which can cause an alteration in consciousness. You know, it's called Martini's Law. Akin to the feeling of being drunk. You, you really feel it. It's usually not harmful in and of itself, but slowed mental activity, giddiness, and overconfidence can lead to divers disregarding safe diving practices. How do you measure narcosis? You do something called time estimation. Somebody says, Jay, I want you to tell me when 10 seconds are up. Or digit recall, uh, 57411475. You can read forward and backward. You get baseline. You did that as soon as we got in the habitat. And so when you are narked, as they say, can you just describe to people what that kind of feels like or what, what that looks like in other people? Uh, I have some stories. Doing a dive with my dive buddy, and we were working it. It turned out to be about 165 feet deep, and we were supposed to be taking this piece of equipment and turning it on a magnetic line. So he was going off and just disappeared. After the dive, I went and grabbed him and came back. And Where were you going? He said he was chasing a starfish. Well, I don't know what the story was, but, but starfishes don't run away on you. I, I can tell you that. I took a number of students and we were diving in some of the blue holes in the Bahamas and one in particular was seeing color, red, and red doesn't penetrate to 100 feet, so I don't know what was going on there. Divers can also succumb to oxygen toxicity, which can be a result of breathing molecular oxygen at high pressures. Most people don't realize that oxygen is toxic, oxygen is poisonous, so that's why the other habitats on air, you're limited to about um, 45 to 50 feet deep. And after a couple of days in that atmosphere where they enriched oxygen because of the pressure, your lung walls start to thicken and you choke a little bit. You know, if you get pure oxygen or 100% surface oxygen, you get toxicity. And that can be a uh, grand mal seizure, which is really not good while you're diving. So I, I had a grand mal seizure, and so I can certainly understand what that feels like. Oxygen toxicity mainly affects either the central nervous system or the pulmonary system. The central nervous system can be affected during a dive due to short exposure to increased partial pressure of oxygen at greater than atmospheric pressure. I thought I was doing everything right. You know, you're supposed to lower your amount of oxygen you're breathing. I envisioned I took my mouthpiece out of my mouth and pushed myself to the surface. Everything the textbook says, 
It was then told to me afterwards, well, Doc, I was your tender. I saw you starting to push off the bike. You took my snorkel out of my mouth before I could put you onto the hoist to uh, get me out of the water. Pulmonary oxygen toxicity, on the other hand, is caused by longer exposure to increased oxygen at normal pressure. This sort of thing can happen during recompression treatments, like those used to stop the onset of decompression sickness. The one dive that I had to do for saturation to be qualified as a saturation diver as a medical officer was an air saturation dive. Air saturation is, is basically you're just pressing on air to 60 foot, which now leads you up to pulmonary oxygen toxicity because the level of oxygen basically burns your lungs in, in a nutshell. Bottom line is, uh, it was a 10-day dive, like I said, only to 60 foot. One of the things we were doing was pulmonary functions tests. So within three days of the 10-day dive, I was informed by the topside medical officer and says, oh, Maria, I'm going to have to, you know, suspend uh, your study because your horse vital capacity is decreased by 5%, which my response was, well, Keith, it's kind of hard for me to stop doing the study since I can't get out of here for seven more days. <laughs> so it took me a good month before my lung function returned to normal. What did it feel like, the effect on your lungs? You cannot get a full breath anymore. We would always go bike riding every weekend. And um, it was not necessarily a very rigorous uh, bike ride, but just trying to get up a hill. And being in Northwest Florida, hills, we're talking maybe a 10, 20% grade. We're not talking steep hills here in, in Florida. And... Um, I could not catch my breath, and I also then felt that I was going to into an arrhythmia because of the lack of oxygen that it could get into my body. You know, so I basically just laid down my bike and knelt on my, my knees and just kind of waited till things subsided. With so much at stake, saturation diving is not for the faint of heart. It can have lasting consequences for divers. It's hard on the body. I spent uh, the, my last few years in the Navy really trying to document the possible repercussions of a naval diving career so that the uh, Veterans Administration would recognize there are dis disabilities that can be associated by being a diver. And that's not including the mental toll it can take on divers. Psychologically, it's also stressful most of the diving that the Navy does is in black water. So now you're working in cold, dark environment where you're basically feeling what you're, you need to do because try to figure out how you're gonna work on your car when you can't see. You know, how are you gonna change your tire if you can't see? How are you gonna get the jack up if you can't see it? You can't see and all you have is your touch and you're cold and the rig you're wearing is noisy in your head. You always have someone talking to you, say, what's going on, what's going on? And it's like, let me think, let me think. It takes a very special person to put themselves in a mindset to accomplish a job that they've rehearsed and trained in order to accomplish. 
some of the projects that the Navy has done that I've been associated with, they will practice and simulate their job for almost a year prior to go doing the job because it's it has to be so ingrained what they need to do that they don't have to think about it. So why do saturation divers put themselves through all of this? It depends on the operation. Saturation diving is a tool to prolong the time divers can spend working underwater. For academics in the military, it's used for underwater exploration, research, and recovery. And in the commercial diving world, it's usually used for work on oil rigs. They didn't think you could adapt to uh, narcosis. But the research we were doing was looking at adaptation, and clearly, oh, after a couple of days, you're, you're adapted to that. For Alan, saturation diving was not just about his own research focus, but an open door to other research about the deep sea. What I was looking at was what happens to your body over time, control of your body temperatures, right? Loss of body heat uh, as saturation went on. Besides the vertical excursion and the nitrogen mycosis pieces, we did some things for the Navy. We had an interesting one for a fellow we called Cosmo. He wanted to find out how deep cosmic rays would go into the ocean. And if we took film down at the surface, it had already been exposed to whatever cosmic rays were there. So we had to make uh, film underwater, and we put it in this tank, and we left it there for a month, and then he came back and he could count the exposures of, of this film we made to uh, cosmic rays, sort of a little different. We, we had one that's, again, a sort of fun. <clears throat> we were looking at um, silting, and we laid out on, on a transit, essentially little like um, baby food jars on a post, and you would see over a few days what would silt down it. Well, one of them kept filling up because a tiny little octopus put it in his house, and he kept bringing shells in with him every day. So messed up the science, but it was sort of cute. For the Navy, saturation diving is often used in recovery missions. Marie was involved in the recovery mission of the USS Monitor, an ironclad warship from the American Civil War that was lost at sea during a storm in 1862 off the coast of North Carolina. The Navy spent millions on the operation to salvage parts of the ship while training divers in deep sea conditions. This particular mission also brought to light the differences between saturation diving and surface supplied diving, which is when divers receive breathing gas through a hose and air compressor from the surface, but who don't remain at pressure like saturation divers do. When you need a lot of work done and you need it done rather quickly, saturation is, is the way to go. I mean, we did the monitor job in salvage of the USS Monitor. And when we were doing that off this platform, we had a mixed gas surface supply going on. And at the same time, we were having saturation complex going on. The surface supply guys had only a 20-minute bottom time. So by the time they got to the bottom, oriented themselves to the, the wreck, literally, uh, to the monitor, and the tasks that they needed to perform, they had to start squaring themselves away to get back up so they would not get bent. Uh, so they had a very restricted time frames. For the 20-minute bottom time, they really only had about 10 minutes of real work. On the other hand, we had a bell on the side 
with two divers out working. And we kind of had a running joke uh, between the two sides is that they would pick up the tools that the surface supply guys needed, make sure it was handed to them before they could do the job so they wouldn't have to spend the time looking for it. And uh, the set guys just kept on working. And when their turn was up, they went to the bell and put in a new set. So it was kind of a interesting scenario because now you really saw side by side uh, the advantages of doing saturation diving versus surface supply diving, particularly for salvage operations. Saturation diving isn't for everyone. Being underwater for long stretches in confined spaces and in cold, murky water is psychologically demanding. But the work can be profoundly unique and rewarding. There are some experiences that being underwater can give you that makes it feel entirely otherworldly. Did you have any experiences that made you kind of freaked out or question your underwater career? We had two earthquakes when we were underwater. They were small, right? Uh, the first one, we were at, I was actually in the habitat, and it sounded like somebody started an outboard engine. And what happened is we were measuring salinity and water temperature. This came up out of the, out of the uh, depths, all right, and the, the temperature went down and the salinity changed uh, with, with that. It was not a big deal, but it was unique. And the next day we had the second little one, and I was in the water, and you could actually feel the water changing in, in, its, in its temperature as you did that. So that was really unique. Being a saturation diver is like being an explorer of another planet, a planet that is cold, dark, strange, and pressurized. But if you think about it, we are creatures living in a pressurized environment already. Our bodies saturated with gases, our blood chemistry in tune with our own strange world. You are a saturation diver by living here on the Earth right now. You're saturated here at this one atmosphere. You go anywhere else, you get to desaturate. That's why astronauts, when they do an EVA, uh, extravehicular activity, they basically have to decompress from one atmosphere to be able to go inside the suit. So they actually have to decompress in order to make a walk out in space if they want to get inside one of their spacesuits. So, you know, so we're all saturation divers. It's just, where do you go from there? So do you go deeper or do you go up into space? So again, it's a matter of perspective. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modulus. Let us know what you think of this podcast by tweeting at us at, at ModulusMag, or if you're feeling generous, give us a rate and review. This podcast was brought to you by the minds and team behind YouTube's Real Engineering and Real Science. This episode was hosted, produced, and written by me, Stephanie Salmon, edited by Graham Harther, and produced and written by Erica Corder. Our music was composed by Lee Rosevere. Thank you to our guests, Alan Waterfield and retired Captain Marie Kinefels, for sharing their stories from the deep sea with us and our listeners. If you'd like to listen to more of this podcast or others like it, go to watchnebula.com. Until next time, and thanks for listening.